Hey there, folks. Welcome to The Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price. I'm your host. Uh, this is going to be quite a setup. I, I think the the word that comes to mind during this intro piece is uh, lineage. <laughs> so I'm going to track the lineage because I think it's very important to hear the line of thinking, and uh, and I'll get to the interview. But first, let me introduce to you today's participant by setting up this important thread. If you've been watching or listening to the podcast, you've been of course, hearing how much I've been attending to uh, my, my appreciation and respect for Brian Marescu. And today, of course, is a massive setup for that. So in Brian's book, The Immortality Key, right here, The Immortality Key, I, I had seen, I saw a book on various feeds and um, in various spaces throughout my life, but had never invested in it. Brian spent the chapter two of his book talking about what happened when the book The Road to Eleusis was released, and I think it's around 1977. So here's, here's the book, 1977. It's by R. Gordon Wasson, Albert Hoffman, and Carl A.P. Ruck. It's called The Road to Eleusis, The Unveiling, Unveiling the Secrets of the Mysteries. And I stumbled upon this, of course, through... Brian's work, and essentially what this book explores is, and I'll, I'll read from the back, psychedelic substances are familiar in a contemporary context, but historians have only recently begun to appreciate their central role in human culture and religious experience. In this acclaimed work, three experts, a mycologist, a chemist, and a classicist, make an informed and plausible case that the famed Eleusinian mysteries of ancient Greece entailed psychoactive chemicals or substances similar to those we know today. When the book was first published, it was quite controversial, and I would learn that through Brian's chapter two. Um, Dr. Ruck suffered, I don't know, I can't speak for him, but apparently there was a bit of a fall from academia because when you start talking about psychoactive substances and religion, Apparently, that gets you excommunicated from academia, at least in 1977. Uh, well, it's changing now, and Brian's very well-researched, very well-thought-out, and well-presented book uh, does a bit of a redemption for Dr. Carl Ruck and brings him back into the foreground, and I'm sure it's extremely satisfying to, uh, <laughs> after all of that chaos, and I can't imagine what he, what he went through, um, he's, he's redeemed. And what, what Brian's bringing to light is the archaeochemical research that's validating what uh, doctors um, uh, Hoffman and, and Ruck and um, Gordon Wasson um, suggested was the reality of this Greek tradition. And it brings a whole lot of questions online about religion, consciousness, and entheogens, a term that Karl Ruck coined. So... I, I want to talk a little bit, the, the, to set this up, I read uh, a number of Karl Ruck's books um, that he sent me on PDF form, but I read The Road to Eleusis, then another one of his books, Entheogen's Myth and Human Consciousness, and then also Apples of Apollo, 
pagan and Christian mysteries of the Eucharist. Uh, Dr. Ruck's work is, is, is fantastic. I, I highly recommend to anybody interested in these subjects to get his work. Um, certainly you can start with The Road to Eleusis. If you haven't read The Immortality Key, um, that's, a, that's a good read. I'm a total book geek, so I, I I set this whole entire podcast up to do research, and so it kind of holds me accountable, and I'm glad it it does, because uh, I read through a ton of um, a good actually when it comes to Dr. Carl Ruck, I, I only read through a, a fraction of his work because I think he's written somewhere close to who knows thirty forty books. Dr. Ruck, thanks for sitting for this interview, and I'm really grateful for the time. I want to. Uh, reference a couple of websites that he spoke about. Uh, first of all, look below on the in the liner notes, and you'll find links to uh, Carl Ruck's uh, page at the Boston University website in the Classical Studies. Um, and I'll read through his bio, and then I'll get to a couple of links. Carl A. P. Ruck is an authority on the ecstatic rituals of the god Dionysus. With the ethnomycologist R. Gordon Wasson and Albert Hoffman, he identified the secret psychoactive ingredient in the visionary potion that was drunk by the initiates at the Eleusinian mystery. In Persephone's quest, Entheogens and the Origin of Religion, he proclaimed the centrality of psychoactive sacraments at the very beginnings of religion, employing the neologism Entheogen to free the topic from the pejorative connotations for words like drug or hallucinogen. Uh, Dr. Carl Ruck, uh, received or uh, achieved his his bachelor's in 1955 from Yale University, um, pre-medical uh, psychology and classical uh, philology, a master's from the University of Michigan, and a PhD in 1965 from Harvard University in classical studies. I look below again to find a number of links, and I'd also like to uh, direct you to wassonwest.com, W-A-S-S-O-N, west.com. Um, the Wasson Ruck Entheogenic Research Institute and Archives provides research and publishing opportunities related to a humanities-based, multidisciplinary, and scholarly study of entheogens. Check that website out, and also entheomedia.net. Entheos is a community of enthusiasts, scholars, and scientists who share a common interest in the role of entheogens as it pertains to human spirituality. Recognizing the important role of the psychedelic experience, both past and present, to the development of spiritual expression, we intend to publish the most accurate, relevant, and current research available on the subject. Check both those websites out. I'm on them now, and they are easy to navigate, and they look fantastic. Um, as far as that, I think we'll just get to the interview, but before we do, I would like to uh, reference a couple of important uh uh, you know, of my laundry list. Um, so check out the class. Go go below, look at the class at the Young Center at younghouston.org. I'll be teaching loosely based on Brian Morescu's book, but also a lot of these books I've been um, reading and uh, authors I've been speaking to regarding uh, religion and, and entheogens or psychedelics. Uh, the class day starts April 27th. Uh, it's it's uh, the first, uh, the last Tuesday of April. And it goes through three other Tuesdays in May. Again, look below for the link. And, uh, and I'm excited because Brian Marescu will be joining us for the third class to do a bit of a question answer. Um, and of course, uh, it's a virtual event. So anybody anywhere can get into it. Uh, younghouston.org. Uh, 
Um, uh, for information on this podcast, look at thesacredspeaks.com. Uh, for uh, the music, the theme music is from Modern Nations. Check them out at modernnationsmusic.com. And I'd also like to tip the hat to the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences, which is a boutique integrative practice that my wife, Leva Scott Price, and I started. And you can check us out at the thecenter4has.com. Uh, also note that on YouTube, there's a, a panel discussion that we engage all the clinicians from the center. It's called Get Centered. And just look that up on YouTube by searching for the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. And of course, if you're listening to this, thank you. Podcast has been only audio for quite some time, although recently I'm adding a video concept. <laughs> uh, the concept will be released soon, but um, as that project is getting started, I'm also starting to release the podcast on video. So if you're listening to this, check on it. go on over to YouTube and search The Sacred Speaks, and please subscribe to the page. It really helps as I'm growing this community. Uh, and of course, like any episodes that you end up checking out, uh, and share it with, uh, with people that you know that are interested in this content. This is a research-based project, so it's a kind of a living uh, reference page. I decided what I wanted to do was, uh, in, in the preparation for creating a book, I wanted to open source all the research. And so what you see in this project, which may be different than other podcasts, I, I don't know, I don't, I don't really know what everybody else is up to, but... This one is, uh, there are several different phases, and currently I'm in the research phase, where what I in large part do, if, if you watched episode 63, um, I tend to bracket. So I want to take all my preconceived notions out of the equation and really discover what's going on for each individual author and researcher. Uh, and, and of course, these threads are immense, and I just keep unraveling this thread and new discoveries are happening. So it's, it's working. Uh, and phase two is about to start in the next probably three to six months um, where there will be a teaching component. I'll be synthesizing the information I've been learning. And that'll be exciting, and I'll let you know when it comes out. But for now, um, I think that's it. I, I, it's funny. We've got to ask ourselves, what are we forgetting? I think that's it. Uh, yeah. Check us out at thecenterforhas.com, thecenterforhas.com, uh, The Sacred Speaks. Yeah, I think that's it. We'll leave it there. Thanks for being here. Okay, we're live. Good. Uh, you, at last. <laughs> <laughs> now it's real man now we're now we're on the no, record no 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 we're, we're public okay that's right so all that stuff we were talking about all that really juicy stuff before is you know it's, yeah. it's off the record permanently all the obscenities <laughs> that's right well man i'm i'm uh i'm honored to to connect with you and be able to dive into this material i the first thing i want to say is that i've i think i've recorded something close to about 64 episodes yeah and I've not had anybody give me so many of their books. I mean, rarely is it that somebody has written so many books, yeah. but I, got, I had to get a, a, an external hard drive to, uh, to keep up with the amount of literary work that if, has come out of your brain and your mind. It comes with living a long time. Well, you know, I'm sure it does, man, but you're, you're into all kinds of different cool territory. So full disclosure, I was able to read The Road to Eleusis, 
most of the apples of Apollo and all of entheogens, myth, and human consciousness. And I read through a couple of the books you sent me online, um, and I, I forget which ones caught my attention. Certainly the one on Dionysus did. But then uh, disconnected from all that, I was just, I guess Amazon was like, oh yeah, you're poking around in this guy, Carl Rucks, his stuff. I got The World of Classical Myth, and I started reading that. And I, I really appreciate that book as well. Yeah. But as far as structure for today is concerned, you know, the way that I I stumbled upon your work is through Brian Marescu. I was going to ask you whether, of course, you you, you know about Brian's book, which is yeah, so I read to the forefront. Totally. And I, I interviewed him. And then I said, to, I said to him, I was like, dude, I've I've got to talk to Carl Ruck. Yeah. And um, so he pointed me in your direction. And so I. I think as far as our structure is concerned, it would be, I think, really cool to talk about The Road to Eleusis in the context in which it was created, but also what happened culturally after, socially, I should say, um, whatever you're willing to share about the censorship that happened. And, and so then we can talk about your personal experience of this censorship, what was happening in Eleusis, uh, but then I really want to get into myth and um, that that the more classical dimension of your work that shows up certainly in um, Apples of Apollo. Yeah. I'd no, love to talk. I mean, my original intent was to uh, be trained for the kind of work that you're doing. Uh, tell, tell me, what do you mean? I uh, first I was going to be a medical doctor, so I, I took pre-med courses, and then I became fascinated with psychiatry, and so I was doing pre-med to, uh, for psychiatry mm-hmm. and a, a, a philosophy first-year uh, college philosophy course. The teacher said, um, "I don't know how he knew this." He said, uh, "You don't want to study psychiatry." Uh, you're interested in the soul. And uh, you think that by studying psychiatry, uh, you'll learn about the human soul, which was true. I was fascinated by the uh, accounts of delusional reality of uh, psychotics and things of that kind. He says, you want to learn about the soul, uh, you'd think that you would study theology or something like that. He said, you have to study the humanities. Because that's the product of, of healthy souls, whereas psychiatry is treating troubled souls. So I switched from pre-med to what I thought was the most basic of the humanities, which was classics. I had to, uh, uh, I, I was just learning Greek at, at the time, and I had to quickly review what I'd learned of Latin in high school. So I was at Yale, and I spent an extra year at Yale in order to um, get the necessary credits for the degree in, in, uh, in uh, the humanities. And so I've always been most interested in the, the, the sources of inspiration where artists um, where they conceive how our human mind in its depths can bring works of great importance, both physical works and literary works, into reality. 
I, I come to speak of it as the deepest wellsprings of creativity. And that inevitably leads you also to theology. Mm-hmm. It sure does. But as a phenomenon, not as, I mean, I was trained uh, as a Catholic and I've talked to other, Brian is an ex-Catholic also, and you never stop being a Catholic. You just become an ex-Catholic. I've come to realize, however, that Christianity and, and in particular Catholicism is really a, a Hellenic religion. Uh, it, it was a Jewish sect that was proselytized to a Hellenized world. And so the, the Christian myth, as I come to speak of it, is pretty much the same sort of thing one finds in classical mythology. Okay, so that certainly sets things up. I mean, uh, for, for anybody out there who's not, would, would you just give the synopsis of The Road to Eleusis? And I'm, I'm curious in the first hand, because I know it's come out now again and again and again, new editions. But yeah. What was going on when you were initially putting that together with two very significant res- or sources yeah. at the time? I, uh, I, I had taken a sabbatical, my first sabbatical year to, to live in uh, for a semester in Greece. I wanted to feel what it was like to live in the landscape. And uh, I uh, went to London and bought a car there and drove from London to Greece. So it was my big adventure. And in London, I had noticed a book in a bookstore, uh, John Allegro's Sacred Mushrooms and the Cross had just been published. And so I filled up the car with books um, and that was one of the ones. And so I read it while I was in Greece um, I didn't check on what people were saying about it, how you're not supposed to read it and that it's all wrong and things of that kind. I was intrigued by the fact that he was quoting classical sources. And so were, some of his material was beyond my expertise, but where he impinged upon classics, uh, I found what he was saying documented and, and intriguing. And so I wrote, when I came back from Greece, I wrote two essays. Uh, that were published in peer-reviewed journals uh, about um, what I now would call ethnobotany, um, but psychoactive sacraments in, 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 in classical myth. And uh, it was only then that I became aware of Gordon Wasson's work, Soma. I, I knew about it, but since it had to do with Sanskrit and that wasn't my background, I hadn't read it, but uh, I read Wasson's Soma, and a friend said, you should send Wasson your essays. So I, uh, I sent him my two essays, and he almost immediately gave me a phone call saying we had a meek. And so we met a couple of times, and uh, very quickly he proposed that we work together on the Eleusinian mystery which was something I knew very little about because it's not, at that time, it wasn't um, fundamental to your training in classics. Uh, It was just something that people did and was important to them. But for the most part, um, there's a Christian prejudice in in classical studies. And so uh, classical religion is important only as a prefiguration of what's going to become the true revelation in Christianity. 
Um, so I uh, very quickly learned about Middle-Sydney mystery. And uh, so we worked together. Uh, and we, I, I can't believe that, that I accessed the material that, that I present in that book because at that time, uh, you didn't have easy access to interdisciplinary work that, as you now do with, with the computer. You just put in two, two words and, 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 and uh, J, uh, JSTOR and you, you come up with all kinds of scholarly essays. Uh, yeah. But uh, um, at, at that time, your training was rooted in your, your discipline and you didn't have access to, uh, to, uh, to other disciplines. So I, I uh, worked with him and we very rather quickly published that. Um, and as for the prejudice against me, when uh, it, it was published at, at, the, at that time, I was the acting chairman in the classics department. And we had uh, an, a new uh, president of the university who, uh, whose background was in philosophy and he had a special love of classics. And so I gave him a copy of, of, the, uh, of, the, of the Road to Eleusis. And uh, shortly after that, I was at a chairman's meeting in his office. And he said, that it's very important now that we give promotion and advancement only to people who have published uh, reputable things. Uh, and then he looked at me and he said, not things in the vanity press. <laughs> and that's the only discussion I ever had with him. I mean, it was Harcourt Brace, um, but it wasn't an academic press. And uh, it wasn't the vanity press since we didn't pay them to, to publish it. But he just dismissed the whole thing. And um, we never had a discussion, even though he, we should have had a, a lot to discuss. We never discussed Eleusis. Uh, he just sort of shunned me after that. It's it's wild, isn't it? I mean, yeah. one thing Brian said was that it there wasn't the kind of archaeochemical science behind this theory then. No, uh, that's what Brian has done to, to uh, look for chemical analyses that uh, justify what, what we did in the road to Eleusis. And that's fantastic work. Uh, uh, it was work that you can do now with the computer, but that, at that time, uh, he, uh, Brian discovered that Enriqueta Pons, um, the uh, Catalan archeologist who'd been excavating a place in, uh, outside Barcelona, where a uh, Greek colony had a local version of, a, of the Eleusinian mystery. And uh, in, the, in the excavation, there was a room of a house, which was obviously used as a shrine. And uh, they uncovered very small uh, drinking vessels. You would think they were uh, a child's doll tea set but this was a sanctuary and so it, it wasn't that uh, very very small and Enriqueta and, and her associates found that there was residue in these little cups and by testing the residue uh, discovered that it was a kind of 
of a grain potion where the grain had been ergotized. So it was the confirmation of uh, our, our theory about Eleusis. But uh, it's only with the computer that you could do that kind of, uh, you know, cross-disciplinary work. Um, because Enriqueta had published her work, but it was in archaeology and it was in Catalan, uh, and so no one paid any attention to it. Well, so what was it like for you to hear about that confirmation, given that you were kind of pushed around a bit? Yeah. Well, Brian and, and I went to um, Barcelona and Girona uh, and met Enriqueta, and we had a wonderful time together. But uh, he also recorded me. He said, "Now what?" Did, he showed me the little thing, and he said, "What does what, what does uh, what does this mean to you?" I said, "Well, it is confirmation of what I've been saying, isn't it?" And I mean, the important thing is uh, something that small. Uh, if you're going to drink something from it, would be a tablespoonful. So it's not it's not a drinking vessel. A vessel that's something for a dosage of a potion, obviously. And we know what the potion was. It was a, a, a form of LSD, LSA. Well, and for those of you uh, tuning into this that don't know about this book, uh, R. Gordon Wasson, Albert Hoffman, and Carl Ruck. Um, and of course, one claim to fame on that roster is Albert Hoffman, years before, synthesized LSD from Ergot. And... Yeah, yeah. And, and this whole thread is, um, has shown up in counterculture and society and all kinds of political and interpersonal and you know, academic dynamics, even still today. And so we're still kind of pushing up against this conservative and progressive dynamic when it comes to these kinds of substances. And of course, your narrative is no different. You were, you were kind of shouldered around and body checked with, yeah. with this theory that ends up coming out as correct. It's got to, I mean, that's just got to be quite redemptive. Yeah. Well, we, uh, a couple of years ago, we proposed uh, the Gaia project, which was an initiative for a new museum complex at the site uh, of uh, Eleusis, hmm. modern Eleusina. And um, we found that the Minister of Culture was not interested in backing us we were merely trying to raise money for a new museum complex and, and, and study center. And we were not focusing on drugs. Um, but the, the fact that, that my work suggested that the ancient mysteries involved the drinking of a psychoactive sacrament, uh, it was too politically difficult. They thought that um, if it were known that Eleusis was a place where drugs were taken, to put it bluntly. It would, it would deter tourism, uh, whereas absolutely the opposite would be the case. Right. Uh, because Eleusis is pretty much an, an ignored site. Uh, all of the other, we argued that the other major sites like uh, Olympia, Olympia and Delphi, they have a foot in the future. At Delphi, uh, in the early past century, um, a, a Greek poet uh, and uh, his American wife uh, established a poetry festival uh, so that Delphi has, has a, a modern uh, 
enactment. And of course, everyone knows that Olympia um, is where the concept of the modern Olympian Games uh, was formed. And so we thought that at, at, at Lucina, we would have a place for the study of, of our relationship to planet Earth and to renegotiate the terms of our relationship with our own planet before we deplete its resources and it becomes uninhabitable. That seems to me like quite a good foot in the future, mm -hmm. but they thought it would be bad for tourism. And so we've been ignored. Do you ever feel like you're the guy that's telling all the kids of the world that there's no Santa Claus? Yeah. <laughs> I bet. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Brian's book may uh, reignite enthusiasm for mm -hmm. the, the Gaia project. We, we hope that will be the case. Well, it's catching fire. I mean, he's, he's on quite a trail. But, but uh, chemical uh, uh, evidence is not the only evidence. We have the literary evidence. Uh, and if you know how to interpret myth, my primary interest is in myth. As I said, I was interested in, in, in psychotic fantasies, and, and I realized that they, uh, like uh, everything emanating from, from uh, our creativity, our testimony for, for our own identity, and what we call, call a psychotic fantasy is an individual person's uh, con construct. But when this becomes a matter of cultural tradition, uh, you, you could see mythology as the psychotic fantasy of a culture as it evolves. So let's go there, though. I mean, you've been teaching this for many years, and I'm, I'm curious to mind your to mine your experience with students. What do you tend to notice? Like, what are the preconceived understanding uh, understandings that people have of myth and certainly religious narratives when they come into your classes and what do they tend to get excited by and what blows their mind? Some, some people, uh, it, it changes the way that they re relate in, the, in their ordinary existence uh, to the world. Uh, it, it changes their, it changes what they want to do with their life. Uh, others either discover that it's, uncomprehensible, incomprehensible. And I've come to realize why that's the case, because what, what I am saying is that um, who you think you are is not who you are. Mm -hmm. uh, you are a multiplicity of beings uh, with one persona dominant, but if you're not aware of the other multitude of people residing within you, uh, if you're not a, a, as a human aware of your relationship to your bestial nature, as a civilized person, your relationship, everything you define yourself as is defining an opposite. And the opposite is necessary for, for you to be who you are. Um, and so there's an infinity of, on both sides. Uh, and ultimately, if you want to simplify it, you can just say there's the version of yourself when you're alive and the version of yourself as you're dead. When you're dead, um, one cannot exist without the other. And if you're not aware of this other aspect of yourself, you're not healthy. 
it's 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 the basic concept of, of, of psychiatry. You mm-hmm. must go back and discover the people you've rejected in the, in the past and, and make a compact with them, which would of course be basically what we're proposing as a cultural phenomenon for for the Gaia project. But some people, um, and more and more as we progress in, through the past century to the present time. It doesn't mean anything because I, and then I didn't because they are Facebook generation. They think that the face they put on Facebook is who they are. Um, that's not who they are. <laughs> it's the one they're presenting. Um, and so some people are incapable of being aware of the fact that they are not their public presentation. That is a construct. Uh, there are many other people as well, and as a psychiatrist, as, as of course, basically, what you're what you're doing all the time. You wrote somewhere that um, Mircea Eliade said something. I think it was to you about this book, "The Road to Eleusis," and that the because in in the Eleusinian mysteries there was an actual ritualized death and rebirth that yeah. the initiate was was uh, enduring or moving through. And that because we don't have that in our culture, there's no myth of the re- eternal return. And so we yeah. kind of less left to suffer. Yeah. Uh, and are there ways that you think that our culture currently has these rituals? Um, <laughs> before, before we started recording, I, I, I spoke to you about my, my recent heart surgery. And, the doctor said that I was dead and came back. They said, oh, really? <laughs> That's something familiar now. <laughs> I was wondering about that when you said it. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, it's almost my understanding of this book is that what the culture for thousands of years, I mean, we need to contextualize this for people. This was a 2000 year phenomena that happened annually. And I think somewhere you wrote it was only missed for one year out of those yeah. 2000. Yeah, and we don't know what would happen inside the walls, right? So it was kept secret, or it was kept hidden. Yeah, but 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 we have an awful lot of evidence, and if you know how to read the myth, the mythical uh, account, it's quite clear what happens. Um, if you reveal the secret, and we're not not quite sure what that was, because it it wasn't that something was drunk and something was seen, because that's open. Um, we also, um, uh, it wasn't exactly the formula for what was drunk because that's known too. Although there's a secret about uh, about what is known about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you revealed the secret, it, it was a crime punishable by death. Uh, and we just, uh, there was in fact, uh, in, in the fifth century, uh, a, a, a tremendous scandal because it was found that, that many people were performing the mystery at home uh, with uh, dinner guests. Uh, so it's, it's quite clear that, that it was what we would call um, recreational use of, 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 of a sacred uh, uh, sacrament. Um, but uh, it, so, so it's hard to know what it was exactly that um, uh, uh, it would be revealing a, 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 as the secret. 
but in 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 poetic terms, uh, there's there's a clear indication of, of what it is in Euripides' Ion play, and he says that once you pass through the uh, the, the portal into into the the chamber of initiation, you will see the stars dancing. Um, and the building has a roof on it, so you 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 can't. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, what does it mean? It means that you have transcended from that enclosed space. Probably, uh, probably the whole ritual goes back to rituals which were enacted, as we know, in um, in, in the greatest antiquity, um, in the Paleolithic period. In, in caves, which they, why did they go into caves? They went into caves so that they could escape from the cave. It became mythologized as, as Plato's allegory of, of the cave. Uh, people in the cave transcend through the walls of the cave to, to the, uh, well, in, in Plato's allegory, you take them out of the cave. They think what they're seeing in, in the cave, but it's only shadows cast on the wall, and you take them out of the cave. And you say, no, oh, oh, I didn't realize those were only shadows. And But the application of the allegory is that then you tell them, no, <laughs> this outside the cave is the cave. Now apply it. And so what, where do you travel? You travel to another world. It's not. It's nothing different. Do you really travel to another world? Not really. It's what William James, a century ago, described uh, as passing through the filmiest of barriers to a, 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 another dimension of reality, which is, as he said, uh, there's no way of judging that other reality as more real than ordinary reality. So what really do you experience? You can mythologize it as a journey to the edge of the cosmos or to the depths of the earth, uh, a journey to, into the underworld. But what you really are discovering is that the way you have configured reality um, is not the only way, what you perceive, it's not the only way of perceiving it. You can see the spaces between reality in, instead, or you can put the things, the objects together with different configurations. And what I found particularly exciting is that in such an experience, instead of the ordinary filters that determine how you're going to put objects together, um, you are freer. And what, what becomes operative are the archetypal patterns that are part of our um, uh, inheritance as humans. And so to put it in its easiest form to understand what you can do is enter the, if, if you've been trained in the myth, mythopoetic tradition, this is a ready-made mode of configuring reality. And with an entheogen, with this psychoactive sacrament, you enter the world of myth. So what you thought was a story isn't a story, it's a reality. Did, well, on, and did, you look back at this reality and you realize, oh, that wasn't real either. That was only a story. It's a story I tell about myself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I kind of tend to romanticize, you know, back then. 
uh, whatever back then might be. And a typical narrative for me here is that rational thought or materialism is a myth or a, a worldview that has set reality or what is real in the material world and the things that can yeah. be touched and measured. And, and this is an old trope from what you've been reading and what you've been studying of let's go 2000 to 2,500 years ago around Greece. Does that kind of rational mode of thinking show up then as well? Are, are we dealing with a dual dual existence between the rational and the non-rational? as much yeah. as we are today? We, we have to, we have to um, entertain the possibility. Uh, this, the testimony of, of several, uh, what we consider uh, ancient scientists or, or mathematicians is that they actually saw what we now consider some of the fundamental uh, blo blocks of rational thought. Uh, geometry and mathematical relationship, they discovered this by seeing it and they saw it in a cave or starting in a cave, but in their experience, they journeyed to the edge of the cosmos and looked back and saw the relationship of the uh, angles of a triangle and, and, and things of that kind. Um, they saw it. Um, in a, a, another one of my favorite quotes is in Pedicles, uh, and he says, uh, the soul of man, you can see why this would have fascinated me, the, the soul of man is a far country. No one ha has journeyed there, has ever found its boundary. Yeah, it's it's there seemed to be more of an experiencer mindset. And I I guess one of the things for us is that all of our technological advances has made us dependent on those technologies and we're not able to to see in that way. Yes. Yeah, I've been fascinated in, in um checking various uh, great advances in, in, in what we call science, discover that the, uh, the concept came to the, the discoverer um, as a visionary experience, an altered consciousness, which is only natural. Um, by altering consciousness, that doesn't mean that you're becoming deluded. It means that you're allowing your ordinary way of putting things together to have some fluidity so that you can put them together in another way. And as I said, what way would that be? Well, something would have to determine it. It could be your indoctrination in myths, and, and if not that, certainly the same sort of uh, force that produces the archetypal patterns in myths, which would be the deepest uh, levels of one's own consciousness. And so it's some aspect of your own humanity that's discovering these truths about reality. We, we tend to think that consciousness is a function of the brain, but it's probably the other way around. The brain is a, fun is a function of consciousness.
That's hard to get. Just produce the brain in order to understand it. So, yeah, that's again, that's hard for us to begin to understand that this is part of that. What a friend of mine, Jeff Kripal, talks a lot about, which is the antenna theory of or physiology that we're, you know, this collection of networks and meat and, you know, all this actually tunes me into something. It's predisposed to tune me into something that is fundamental as opposed to this. And of course, this is where we start to understand why drugs are so offensive because when somebody takes a drug, it's just the drug doing what the drug does as opposed to opening up that typical mode of existence to be more receptive to that field of awareness or, or whatever kind of language we can use. And, and, and no one is proposing you know, a free-for-all of drugs. Uh, drugs can be addictive, and addiction is, is a terrible affliction. Uh, alcohol is an addictive drug. I know various people who have died from alcoholism, and uh, I have friends who are struggling for years to try and uh, break uh, an addiction to nicotine. It's, it's not, we're not talking about uh, addictive drugs anyway, um, but we're talking about, um, we are however talking about, about uh, substances which can be abused recreationally. Uh, and what's wrong with that sort of thing? Uh, I don't mean to say that you could have this kind of experience only in a controlled religious environment because I oppose all forms of indoctrination. And so I would find doing this in a church, I would, I would find doing, uh, Brian and I would, would love to do this in St. Peter's, as a matter of fact, as the correct environment, but not so that we can uh, authenticate uh, Catholic dogma. Well, earlier you said the, um, it's something you said about the Christian myth. And I'm wondering if one byline through our conversation, if we can just take Christianity as kind of a way for us to talk about myth and the way that it gets affected over time. And what I'm, what I'm interested by is I'll, I'll I'll put an endpoint to us also in, in apples of Apollo, you wrote, a chapter called Jesus, the drug man. Yes. And I was totally interested in this chapter. And, and now I've read a lot, you know, I've read four, four of your books almost and some excerpts from others. And I, I, the kind of information that you're talking about in that chapter, but in all of your work is pretty shocking to a lot of people because yeah. of this indoctrination process when the person doesn't know they've been indoctrinated, that their perceptions and worldview is a, is a mythic worldview that they're taking literally. Yes. And, and so the, if we could just start, uh, <laughs> let's, let's have a pretty controversial and interesting conversation about Christianity, if you don't mind, and, and start at the beginning and set the tone for how Christianity came, came to be. And then I'm also interested in the collision of these these kind of pre-Christian cults and the Roman Catholic Church, and and then of course where uh, where your work work picks up, looking at uh, 
pre-Christian and pagan Eucharist, right? All that line. Can we explore that together? Yes, it's um, fascinated by what is probably the situation that we have discovered. I mean, it's always been known, but kept from most people. Um, quite sure that within Christianity, there were sects that um, had a psychoactive sacrament, a continuation from, from, from antiquity. Brian and I have the feeling that the Pope is an intelligent man and aware of the indigenous culture uh, from which he, 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 he grew, and that we could have a very meaningful discussion about uh, psychoactive sacraments and, 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 and religion. Uh, we think that many people very high in the hierarchy would understand and, 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 and probably even have secrets that, uh, that we don't know about this within Christianity. So, but we're on the outside and trying to prove it. And so one of the things that I'm um, fascinated with is indication of psychoactive sacraments um, that are uh, one can find by examining um, medieval and Renaissance art. Great works of art often are encoding the secret and those who know recognize it. Those who don't know don't understand it. It goes back to the greatest antiquity in, uh, in Sophocles' death of Oedipus. We have uh, the language of mystery initiation and the messenger who describes the death of of uh, Oedipus is played by the actor who previously was Oedipus. And so, of course, there's some confusion, is he dead or not? Uh, he describes the blinding flash that united the heavens with the, the underworld uh, so that you had to shield your eyes. And But then he says, if you know what I'm talking about, that's good. If you don't understand what I'm talking about, I'd rather be talking to somebody else. Uh, which is the typical uh, indication that if you've been initiated, you understand what I'm saying. If you haven't been initiated, you haven't a clue to what I'm talking about. And what does that mean, initiated? It means that you have had the experience and the experience is of, if you, if you die before you die, you will never die. by experience, not by intellect. Yeah. And I mean, death, death, death seems like a, 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 a final terrifying moment. Um, but um, I believe in the Eleusinian mystery and others, you pass that moment uh, made uh, a compact with what is on the other side of the interdimensional barrier and have come back again. And so what does this mean? It's, it's hard to know because I don't, don't want to sound like a spiritualist and things of, of that kind, but there are strange things about uh, spirits and remembered past existences and so forth. And I don't mean that it gives anyone any solace about being stuck contemporarily in this living state. But there are things we don't understand which seem to indicate that, well, if you don't want to put it in the spiritual level, you know that nothing can be destroyed, it can only be cha changed. 
so uh, whatever you are made of is never going to disappear. Uh, although it may be tied to the existence of our planet. And if our planet becomes unusable, maybe that means that you lose your immortality. Your, your, your immortality may not be on the edge of the entire cosmos. It may be part of the ecosystem of the earth. Hence why the Gaia project would be so important mm -hmm. or why we have to become aware of the fact that as we are using up the resources of our planet, we are destroying our, our, our future. And mysteries. I'm, yeah, there are always these two ways of looking at it, whether you can accept materiality or whether you want um, a, a pure spiritual existence. And so it, 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 it's a bizarre coincidence that uh, our moon probe um, was called, no, in antiquity, this is divided between the, the Apolline uh, attitude uh, of complete purity and spirituality and the Dionysian, which is in, the, in accord with, with, with irrationality and, and uh, with all the darker forces of existence. The moon probe was called the, the Apollo. Uh, and there are people who feel that uh, we don't have to worry about our planet. We can uh, just find another planet to begin the whole thing over again. For only those few elite who, one way or the other, make it onto the final rocket leaving the, the, this planet. But we don't care about the others. We don't care about the lesser people, the minorities. And, uh, and all the rest, the two attitudes, but the Dionysian, and I think the, the secret of the mysteries is integration, um, polyethnicity. Um, the, um, the, 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 the division between sexes becomes uh, something that doesn't matter anymore. Um, it, 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 in its basic uh, experience is, to know the deepest darkness of your own self. If you don't know who you are before you die, you've lost the chance. Can, can you, uh, I heard this quote from, I forget where I heard it, but it was, uh, there are two kinds of people in the world, the kind of people that think there are two kinds of people in the world and the kind of people that don't. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, like uh, I've referenced Jeff a couple of times, he calls the uh, the human being the world splitter, that yeah. we, we have this kind of duality inherent in our consciousness. And there does seem to be something that registers on the political um, uh, uh, layer, which is this kind of conservative and in its purest form, not not the way we define it today, but to conserve to yeah. to hold on to this certainly there's a there's a tendency for nostalgia and then the progressive move which is this kind of adventure and um, novel experience so security and tr traditional uh, traditionalism and familiarity and then seeking adventure and newness is that fair to say that that's one of the battles where these uh this territory is fought. I, I would, I would think so. Yes. So, um, 
the, I mean, the, I, I think that the real importance of the road to Eleusis uh, is that Gordon Wasson, his, as it began simply, um, wondering why he and his wife had such a different attitude towards uh, mushrooms, uh, stumbled upon this whole phenomenon. But um, although psychoactive su substances and altered consciousness uh, have been known throughout uh, the, the centuries, it was not common knowledge. And uh, his, his work suddenly made it, especially uh, the Life magazine uh, article about uh, Maria Sabina in 1957, suddenly made it, uh, made a common uh, a person aware of it. And so he precipitated what we now might call the psychedelic revolution, which was a change in consciousness as profound as what occurred in the Renaissance in Italy. Uh, it's responsible, as people who worked in these technologies uh, testify, for the whole computer um, generation of technology, as I said, which has opened up such great uh, avenues for, 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 for discovery. We're not the same as we used to be um, because of what Wasson did. And I had a small part in that because um, I happened to work with him uh, on the Ellicinian mystery. He uh, was interested in the Ellicinian mystery be because his work was on soma, uh, a psychoactive uh, plant, which is not personified, um, but is central in the Vedic religion. Uh, and, and he proposed that that uh, psychoactive plant was a particular mushroom people, uh, critics said, if that is the case, um, you should be able to find indications of a similar sacrament in other places where the Indo-Europeans settled. And he knew from his father, who was a archbishop, about the Ellicene mystery. And uh, NC approached me because we were looking for confirmation in classical tradition of a similar tradition uh, um, ritual as he had uh, uncovered in, in the Vedic tradition. And so, but that opened up to common knowledge uh, uh, the fact that there were these substances that um, could alter consciousness and that what one experienced in such altered consciousness might be an avenue of, of knowledge, a cognitive tool is, of course, a very dangerous cognitive tool because it's also opened up a very prevalent drug addiction and, and, and drug abuse. Anyone who takes a, a holy sacrament profanely destroys the sanctity of the sacrament. And so it is an affront to the spiritual world. I don't want to say it's a front to God because I don't think that God exists as a separate entity. I think it's the whole realm of, of experience, which is just part of our 
more hidden uh, aspect as humans. I don't think God, I don't think God is a single entity. I think that God is a construct out of all of, all of our existences that we we as a totality have as a, an opposite totality something we might call God, but it doesn't have to be personified. Since personification is is, is, a, is a constricting configuration upon infinity. So how is Christianity a, a Hellenic tradition? The, um, the, the, um, the, the uh, early Christians, um, uh, intellectuals, um, some of them took the Christ story literally but the more intelligent ones said, don't you realize it's a myth? <laughs> it's a metaphor. Uh, unless you understand the truth of the metaphor, you, you, you're missing it. it, it it's, you don't have to believe that a virgin gave birth, uh, that a virgin had a uh, relationship with a deity and was inseminated. Uh, not that that is a strange uh, event, since it happens over and over. In, in Greek mythology, um, but that, that's that's a story, and it, 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 it's a metaphor. And what is it a metaphor for? It's a metaphor for the incarnation. What is the incarnation? The mystery by which whatever powers mat matter uh, enters into matter. So why did Christianity become so popular? Why is that? Because there were, I mean, in, in your book, Apples of Apollo, you're writing about Simon, yeah. about Jesus, about all the different Jesuses, about the name, about a fact that blew my mind, which is Jesus of Nazareth. That, what the, the, the page that I read when you said, it's interesting that Jesus of Nazareth is called Jesus of Nazareth because Nazareth wasn't a city until about 700 A.D., yeah, and then we, it's like well, again, it, when you start to say just a couple of those, a couple of those facts, they start to begin to detach the the hold that the literal interpretation has upon us. Where if yeah. I've got if I've got to consider that that might not be truth, then what else falls out of that apple cart? So. When, when you take a, a your classicists or classical read on Christianity, what do you say to that? I mean, why was it Christianity? Why did that one, and why did this, why did this particular Jesus figure catch? One um, thing that, that uh, Christianity offered was a role for women uh, in what had become a, a patriarchal revision of, of, of traditions. And so uh, it had great, great appeal in that it didn't exclude uh, half of our sexual identity. It um, had, however, a uh, rival religion, which was equally popular. Um, that was Mithraism, but Mithraism, which was um, an import from Persian tradition, 
um, was solely for men. Uh, the emperors were initiated, the members of the army, and the male bureaucrats who administered the empire were all largely initiates. And it was the old platonic cave experience of transcendence from the enclosure to, to, to the cosmos, but it excluded women. And so the, the great uh, advantage that Christianity was its all-inclusiveness. It's strange because uh, uh, in, in Catholicism, we have a patriarchal control over the religion and so forth. But that uh, the original indication of the Christian sex was that women had, had high roles as priests in, in the religion. So what did it mean to be, I mean, I, I don't know that it was called Christianity, but what did it mean to be a Christian in, let's say, you know, anywhere from, I mean, what, 50 AD, yeah. 200, 300 AD? How was that different from what started to happen in 300 AD? Uh, I'm not sure that I, I, can, I can trace um, the evolution of Christianity, although that would be interesting to, to do that. Um, Brian, Brian, in his... Uh, podcast has uh, mentioned uh, a work that, that I did, which I think is important, and that is that um, we, we uh, have the earliest indication of uh, a Eucharist um, in Paul, and he's the er earliest of the of the Christian writers, everyone is later than he is. The Gospels are later than Paul, and so he's one, one probably the earliest source about Christianity. And in his First Corinthian, um, he uh, is addressing the people in, in Corinth, uh, and he describes the Christian mystery. Corinth is only about 40 miles down the coast from Eleusis. And, and when he says that he's revealing the Christian mystery, there's no way that the people in, it, in his audience who are recipients of his epistle wouldn't think of it in terms of what a mystery was in classical tradition, and in particular the great Eleusinian mystery. Um, and uh, he, he, as, he, as he proclaims it, he says, when the last trumpet sounds, when, when the last moment comes, we won't all die. We will all be resurrected, in, incorruptible. Um, but in the same letter, he also tells them that they're doing the Eucharist wrong. Uh, and um, he, he says that because you're doing it wrong, uh, quite a few of you have become sick. And uh, quite a few of you have also died. Now, most people think, uh, if, if, I mean, because you have to make some sense of it, and, and, and you don't want to make the sense that I'm making out of it. And so uh, let's say, well, the, they, they died spiritually. But no, uh, the, he uses the, uh, and he doesn't say they died. So they've fallen asleep. Uh, and so they, they've become spiritually uh, yeah, uh, asleep. But he uses uh, the same metaphor in the same letter, meaning they died. It's a euphemism for dying. Now, how do you die? 
from a little bit of communion wine um, uh, and, and bread. Uh, you don't die from overeating, so it's not that they're, they're, they're gluttonously uh, having communion wine and bread. Um, so there you have it. Uh, there, there's, there's something about, about it that, that uh, could cause death. Um, but no one knows what to make of it. And so it becomes a metaphor. But they were abusing the Eucharist somehow, and people were dying and getting sick. Uh, and if you have an open mind, it sounds as though they're abusing it. They're using it recreationally. And you had a great treatment of the, of the mushroom the muscaria, Anamita muscaria, is it? Yeah. And the way you talked about how you tend to the mushroom, and I, I guess before I get there, I'm I'm interested in why there is so much concealed in this literary, in mythic form. You know, certainly the alchemists concealed a whole lot of their work, but you you have to you have to have keys to unlock these texts. And so for the time, like why were they having to conceal all this? If, so, if the, the mushroom was a sacrament, what, what was going on with the deception? Um, if, if someone were to ask me, um, would I say you should take a drug to put it bluntly, rather than an antigen. It, uh, sh sh should I take a drug? My answer is, you shouldn't take a drug. <laughs> yeah. If, if you don't know what you're doing, if you're not prepared, it's not going to be anything. You've taken a drug. You have not taken a sacrament. You're... The, the commonest way of, of, of explaining what happens when you have the mystery experience other than dying before you die is that you, you see God. Um, but the secret is that who is this God? Ultimately, it's yourself. You see yourself in its divinity. It would be nice if there were some other beneficent deity presiding over us. That's probably not the case, but probably the totality of our consciousness um, is what we would use the metaphor God for. But not everyone is up to seeing themselves. You as a psychiatrist would know that. I mean, you, you ease people into that experience of seeing who they are. Yeah, I, I interviewed somebody last week, um, Mackenzie Amara. She's studying to be a Jungian analyst, and she's got a, I think she's also studying to get a PhD in psychology. And we talked about psychoanalysis or any deep therapy as an extended acid trip. Yeah. You know, this, this really tender exploration and dive into parts of yourself that are beneath the self that you're aware of. And of course, psychotherapy assisted with alteration of consciousness is much more efficient 
yeah. and profound probably than traditional forms. It's pretty and radical. There are, and there are people who practice such therapy. Absolutely. I talked with Bill Richards uh, a few, maybe last month, and about what they're doing at Johns Hopkins. And it is exciting to think about this may become, I mean, it is, it's becoming something that we can use in healing modalities. And of course I, I share everybody's concern about how, how we end up doing that is yeah. of the utmost importance. I guess we don't have the, not that I would want it, but we don't have the penalty of death. If somebody talks about the secrets, you know, yeah. I guess there are other kinds of death that we have that, but we don't understand the, I have this thing that I do with people that I work with where we talk about sacred, what is sacred and what we hold. Yeah. Like confidentiality is a form of that. How confidentiality and what we do together in psychotherapy is honoring something in a way that puts it above the rest of your life. And so you only, you only talk about or think about or dive into that when you're in this particular container and that act in and of itself in a stage of existence when we are all so beholden to the boundarylessness of our lives, that, that kind of sacred attitude tends to be something very important for, for people to experience. Yeah. Uh, so the, the Christian piece, and I keep, I keep going at that because I think that it's something about Christianity that became so pervasive. Obviously, there are social aspects to why that happened. There are mythic and archetypal aspects to why that happened. But what what do you think was so interesting about this guy, Jesus, given that there were so many different people that were doing miracles and, and that were interested in mystery traditions? Why, why is it he that Came to the I, I I tend to believe that the evidence for the historical existence of Jesus is not sufficient to believe that there was such an event in such a life. I think he's a myth, which doesn't mean to say that it's not true, mm -hmm. but it's true deeper sense than actual events. Uh, just as uh, in, in studying Mithras, who was supposedly a historical figure and who had a similar virgin birth and so on. Um, I mean, I, no, one, no one would think that I'm being heretical if I said, I don't think Mithras existed. Uh, that doesn't mean to say that it's invalid as, as, as whatever it is. But it, it, it's, it, it, it's deeper than an actual event. It's an archetypal event. I, I don't think there was a Jesus. I don't think there was a crucifixion. Other than as a story. Well, and, and that's the point is that it, the implication of my question from where I'm coming is not about, I did have that question about the literal versus the symbolic. Yeah. But I, I think whether or not the actual Jesus existed, I'm so interested in how that figure is, the story is shared so ubiquitously. Yeah. So what, what does it click with? Brian and I both say this, 
but don't mean to be irreligious. It doesn't mean that we are against the religion, um, but we're probably um, we're, we're probably saving the religion by uh, touching base with what it really is all about. I uh, I I see that. I think when I read when I've been reading all your stuff, I think that the attitude that comes up in me is way more religious than the one that came up reading the Bible literally and within those more social traditions that I was certainly raised in. And yeah, I mean, most people think the Bible was written by God. Um, and as far as I know, it wasn't. <laughs> um, oh, well, it was, it was written by people who were inspired by God. Well, a selection of people who claim to be inspired by God. But like any text, um, you can examine it as source material and, and, and so forth, and it's a book. And uh, it doesn't have God's name on the, as author on the title page. Well, then there is that human tendency that turns... What Jung wrote a lot about this, and he talked about the we take the symbol and interpret it as a sign. Yeah. And, and I, what the, my interpretation of these mystery traditions is that they, somebody has an experience and that they no longer can interpret reality from the limited, limiting, literal perspective, but there's this essence that always leaves things open. Yeah. So, so if, the, the archetype, right? This is the, the pattern. And obviously there's something in us that seeks out this kind of narrative or this kind of mythic storyline. Yeah. It, it appears that once the, you know, once Jesus comes online and is incarnated, so the, the Godhead is incarnated in a human being. Yeah there's something that happens with our sexuality with drugs or these sacraments i would say altered state or alternate states of consciousness and women these these three things seem to become confused because you're talking about christianity being a, a religion of that's open to women and men equally and that yeah. women were priests and that these substances that brought about these altered state of consciousness were used as a sacrament in one of the core religious rituals. Well, we got pretty far away from that pretty quickly. So women, sex, and drugs. That's, that's been kind of my, my interest since Brian and I have been talking certainly, but what do you see happening there? Why, why does that why does that confusion happen? Oh, I, I'm not sure I want to even go there. Um, it, 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 it is extremely complex, isn't it? Yeah. And why don't I want to go there? Um, Brian and I agree that it's very difficult to talk about this topic without someone thinking that you're a guru. Uh, which means that you are telling them what they should think about um, 
this spiritual realm, uh, that you are essentially establishing a religion. And I don't want to be the establisher of a religion. Brian doesn't want to be either. Yeah. Um, it's a religion that has no name. Uh, what is that religion? It, it's an awareness of the fact that the space surrounding me right now is not necessarily the way I see it. And, uh, that there are other ways of configuring it. And there are very beneficial ways of reconfiguring it, which allows the archetypes of my own psyche to take control. And so it becomes a world of myth. Um, but it's also dangerous because if I'm not a healthy person, if my dominant persona is not what it presently is, but if what I've rejected from my persona in order to be who I am becomes dominant, I've created a hell around myself. What are, what are we what are really talking? We're talking about what your your job is to make healthy souls or to help troubled souls heal themselves. I, and I. I get it. And there's something about the reason I go there and I, I admire and totally respect what you're saying. And I understand it. Why you wouldn't go want to go there. I'm quite fond of your call there, but it, it, my, my approach here is that when somebody comes into the psychotherapy practice, part of our process is to relate and connect with each other. And so we, we start building relationship. And then there is, so there's something real and in the moment that has to be established. It's uh, like a chemistry experiment. Yeah. And there, there has to be a reaction and a connection and a, a tension, um, an attraction and a love. It, they're, they're, that's something that we don't talk about a lot, that, that love has to be established. And I don't mean our courtship, romantic love i mean you know we say a word like love and people get all bristly and weird it's like yeah. just a genuine desire to connect so that it, needs it, to be it's strangely made up I, I, I have a course on uh, greek drama which i'm doing by a zoom this semester and yesterday we were discussing sophocles oedipus at Colonus, and the final um <laughs> a resolution uh, of what's presented in that drama, which is very complex. It has to do with the fact that Oedipus, would you believe it, is actually a god. Uh, that Antigone, who is Oedipus's daughter, but also his sister, um, she has had to take care of him now that he's blind, as if he were a baby. Uh, on the stage, he's presented filthy, um, uh, uh, and uh, need of constant nourishment. He has a sack that he's constantly feeding himself with. Uh, she's been taking care of him, and finally he dies, and we have this apotheosis of, of his divinity. And what she then says is, I didn't realize that the final word is love, that I had in my hands what I thought I could never love, and now I realized that what I did was love it. So, so what are you loving? You're loving your darker self. 
you're 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 coming into an awareness of the fact that you and everything that you are not are essential for your existence, and you just have to make a compact with it. Uh, it is it is it is the aspiration of our humanity to have this kind of total peace with our planet and with uh, the many ethnicities and, that surround us um, to be integrated rather than restrictive, to love your own pollution. And why would you do that? Because pollution is the source of fertility. It's simple magic. <laughs> <laughs> shit, shit is fertilizer, right? That's right. I wasn't going to use the word, but yes, yeah, shit is <laughs> Well, so so we don't stop there, right? I mean, the the connection is established. But even it's it's the base. It's it's it it shouts at us around around us all the time. We don't want to we don't want to face it. But yeah, and if you don't handle your shit correctly, it pollutes you. Yeah. And how but that how that not only physical shit, it's mental shit also. That, that's right, and that's that's what I think is so important about the psychotherapeutic piece is that when somebody comes in, one of the ways we get there is looking back at their past and we start to mine through the territory. The, the irony is that we're not going to the past. We're looking at how the past is in the current moment. And Jung called this a complex. He said that essentially we have these splintered parts of ourselves that had, had to stay back there and there, there are ways that we adapt to our environment. And now we've got to be conscious of them because they still have an effect emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, physiologically, and to, to reclaim and recollect those contents is in service of wholeness or being integrated, you know, this kind of language that you're using. The interesting piece to this, though, is that when it comes to sex, drugs, rock and roll, and women, there seems to be some kind of active agent that's saying this, not that. And yeah. where, where women and substances like these sacraments tend to go are, are, are the unconscious, it, it, which it, and we're talking now collectively. So, yeah. so what I keep thinking, and I'll tell you where I'm going right now, is that I had a conversation with Amon Hillman about you know, three weeks ago. We are, we are constant contact almost. Yeah, he's, he and I became fast friends, and he's blowing my fucking mind, quite frankly. And I'm now encountering ideas that I never had in my imagination. Yes. They were not there. And so as a psycho, my framework here is a psychotherapist. And I say, what the fuck? Like as a culture, we, it's imperative in the same way that it's imperative for me to sit with my analyst and revisit these contents and bring them into present day. Collectively, it's the shit that we don't want to look at. That yeah. We need to go revisit this. And the thing that I then get confused about is that I don't know if I'm making a literal interpretation or a symbolic interpretation, but the fact of the matter is, one of the things that Amon is talking about is that there were children involved in uh, the initiation and the, di the dynamics of initiating somebody into these mystery traditions. Yes. And they were involved in ways that we look at today and want to turn our eyes away from. I work with people who have been 
uh, were, are sexually abused and are working through that. And what I know to be true is that they have to be in a secure and a trusting relationship that's built on love and connection. They have to facilitate the capacity to look back into their lives and to not fall to pieces and dissociate. They yeah. have to have somebody there that can hold them psychologically as they do the work of integrating what this means to who they are today and realize that that idea of who they were or who they believe themselves to be doesn't totally disrupt their capacity to be a full, complete, and beautiful member of both their own individuality and our collective individuality. Yeah. So, so that's kind of what I'm angling. You might, you might be feeling a little bit of where I keep yeah. going back to the Christian story. What I'm, what I'm looking for is we lost our way. We lost our way in how we interpret. We lost our way in how we are religious. We lost our way in how we view ourselves and our environment and our world. And part of what I'm so turned on by is that this mythic framework feels enormously more pregnant and religious to me than anything I've ever stumbled across. Yes, definitely. The mythical tradition is extremely profound uh, and seems to be, it, it, it's, it's endless. Uh, in in uh, my myth book, I said that the study of myth is a pathway that you take upon yourself and you feel you've gone far along and maybe you should turn back, but it looks as though up ahead is something that you really should investigate. And you keep going and going and going. When you get to the end, although you never do get to the end, what would you find? You'd find yourself. Yeah. So the question is, oddly the enough, is, to know yourself. Well, if you don't know yourself, you don't know anything. Okay, so then in and, line with the this. Knower, the knower can't be separated from what is known. That, that's, that's the falsity, that you stand outside and know, but you can't stand outside. You're part of the knowing. The, what Amun's work is demonstrating, that the original uh, chemical vessel was the human body. That's why you digest chemicals. <laughs> In, in, in an alembic. Um, it's, it's the human body that's the original uh, chemical transformative vessel. Yeah, and then... For that reason, the affluence of, of Dia, I talk about the sacred role uh, ascribed to the various things that flow out of deity. Um, but the the uh, the earliest uh, uh, occurrence of this is is the medical profession. You discover what's happening with the body by seeing what's coming out of it. You so you examine the urine and the feces and sputum and so forth. But when you put put this on the divine level, everything that comes out of the deity is holy. So the holy blood and. Um, The holy urine. Well, holy, yeah, I've learned more about semen, urine, and feces from reading some of these 
uh, and a new term, vaginal excreta. This this is this was radical to me. To yeah. I mean, and I, I have to. Yeah, what I'm in, 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 is discovering that by ingesting dr drugs or applying them in one way or the other, you modify the effluent of the body and that what comes out of the body and is the transformed sacrament. He particularly is working as I am with uh, viper venom, but we don't know exactly how the chemi chemistry works because uh, viper venom, if it's ingested, is destroyed. Hmm. If it's injected, it isn't. It has to bypass the gastric transformation. But uh, he's uncovering indications that, um, that uh, lactation from a chemically altered female would be a source of a, of a sacrament. Yeah, I mean, th this kind of stuff. So that that's what, I don't wanna be too idealistic about this, but if if we recoil from parts of this, we we are disconnecting from the, the threads of our own kind of human discovery. Yeah. And I'm not suggesting that that, I mean, I'm not trying to be, uh, say what is moral or amoral here. Yeah. I'm trying to, I'm interested. I mean, you guys are able to read and have access to texts that somebody like myself doesn't have. Although I am uh, uh, starting to learn Greek by way of Duolingo, which is great, <laughs> which is great. But I, it, my imagination is on fire after after reading this material and yeah. and then you know so i i i guess i i have to pay homage to amon here and say that i am i am to inquire uh about the purple anus that he mentioned before and <laughs> yes. he, said, he said with with uh you know he's he's it's really i i'll tell you our interactions um are, are yeah. really blowing my mind what does the purple anus mean to you well, it's an indication that a particular psychoactive substance has been applied to a uh, tissue of the body that is known to be highly absorb absorptive. Um, and so when you come upon purple anus, you know that it's been medicated. And the only, since it's a, a ritual, so I think probable way that it was uh, 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 administered to, uh, to the anus would be by some replica of uh, of, of a sex organ, uh -huh. and so a medicated dildo. Uh, all of these things seem extremely obscene, uh, and so one has to be careful how you speak of them. But yes, he is fascinated by the purple anus, and he keeps saying, Professor Ruck, you have to get out there and proclaim it. <laughs> you have the statue, just say it. Well, he, I, he, he's, say it. he definitely is part of that trickster, uh, you know, get, let's get all these social boundaries out of the way so we can have honest yeah. conversations. And I get it. I mean, I've been a, 
I'm a newly initiate to this world and I have gone through a threshold of anxiety, you know, because I'm having these conversations real time and they're recorded. Yeah. (laughs) And and then I I think I'm like, oh my God, this is like mind blowing. And then I keep going deeper and deeper and deeper. And I'm going, oh my, this is like, this is radical. This whole thing is radical. So the reason I ask is because we're, there seems to me that there's a collision between these body-based pagan nature-centric traditions that that are on the one hand exploring altered alternate states of consciousness the body are the medical to know the body not from a position of like i want to fix the body but to know the body there's that thread and then there's something that comes along and says, this is amoral. You guys are doing some really heinous shit and you know, we got to stop this quickly. Yeah. And what that did is it, 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 it gobbled up what was happening here into a patriarchal all male tradition that seeks to um, prefer, that's a, not the right term, but prefer the literal interpretation of text rather than a deeper, a more left-handed symbolic. Yeah. And that, so that's why I'm poking around in that territory. And I know it's stuff that we're not supposed to talk about, but it's of interest to me that, yeah. well. I, I, I mentioned a Greek friend who has not uh, died, unfortunately, but um, Solomon Athens, he says, you know, I read what you write. And I said, oh. You weren't supposed to say that. <laughs> that was a secret. Yeah. And and that's the other thing is that, I mean, to me, this seems like what we're talking about is the reason why the film The Matrix was so popular. Yeah. Is we're in, you know, which pill are you going to take here? Because if you if you take one of them, you'll go back to just live in your, your existence and your needs will be met. And I know people who yearn for that. Just tell me who to be, tell me where to go, tell me what's right and wrong, and I'm gonna go about my business and be fine. And then there are other folks, and here we are back to this dual structure, that are like, no, man, like I I want autonomy and I I want to see that from outside of it. Yeah. And we're not we're not supposed to talk about it because we'll get burned at the stake. Yeah. Um, what I'm particularly fascinated is that ancient rituals, um, and my particular concentration is what happened in the Dionysian Bacchanalian revel orgy, uh, that they provided a group experience, which was equivalent what you do in psychotherapy right tell uh, me pronounce therapeutai therapeutai yeah therapeutai yeah yeah that was interesting to me i mean as a therapist i'm you know carl jung wrote this paper clergy or psychotherapy and he was really looking at the role that the the healer uh, has has had in every culture and every iteration which i didn't i mean i i I get it, but now I'm getting it in a really new way than I ever have before. Um, okay, I know we got to kind of start closing things out. Um, 
and I got a lot of questions. So, because I guess I forget, I've been asked to mention that we have two web sites that people might be interested in, and one is that part my work with Gordon Watson and Albert Hoffman, so my intellectual legacy. And there's a foundation that's going to be pursuing that at a facility in the Mesa outside of Taos, New Mexico. Uh, and so people who are interested in that can find it on the web in Wasson West, W-A-S-S-O-N, west.com. And our um, uh, literary um, branch of that is entheomedia, E-N-T-H-E-O-M-E-D-I-A dot net. If I didn't mention that, my friend Mark Hoffman would, I think, you cut my head trouble. off. <laughs> yeah, you're going to be in trouble, yeah. Well, and I'll, for, for people listening, go. I'll include links down yeah. in, the, uh, in the reference or the liner notes. So, um, we, I feel that we've barely begun, uh, but should be a very important I know, conversation. I know, I know. Uh, I, I I hope that just some of these ideas start to start to do what they're what they're doing. I mean, this is the whole point. They start to do what they're doing yeah. for me, which is I start to see things differently. And it's what's so fascinating to me is that reality becomes like I've been telling my wife this that I stupidly I guess I didn't realize that there was such a mystical shamanic tradition in Western philosophy. Yes. And I, so here I was thinking I needed to go to the jungles and, you know, the rainforests of Peru. And, yeah. and yet I'm covered up by this guy, Carl Jung, who's like <laughs> totally in that tradition already. And I've already read all his stuff. It just is now it's linked up with a, a, a lineage that maybe I just was too blind to see it. Yeah. So to go as as, as scientists, uh, people like scientists, uh, people like Freud and Jung, apparently had the experiences that I'm talking about, but they could not let it be known, right. because they would be discredited as scientists. Well, and that is my friend again. I think third time today, Jeff Kripal, who wrote a book called The Flip, which is about scientists and academics who have an experience and it challenges their entire understanding of reality. And so they go from this more materialist orientation, not totally into idealism, but close. I mean, the dual aspect theories are one that start to make sense to people that have that kind of experience. Yeah. When you had your Greek friend that said, you're not supposed to write about this, what's that like? I mean, that you, 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 your expertise happens to be mining territory that has been hidden for a very long time. Yeah. It's, it's the role of an anthropologist to discover a culture's rituals and, and, and traditions, but it's very hard to do that and not destroy what you're studying. You, you don't want to destroy what, you, what you're studying. So if you, if you tell people what they do, are you destroying it? Maybe you are. So you, you don't know what you're supposed to do. Well, any advice for me? Because I'm like trampling around in this territory. We have to 
we have to learn what I've been saying about integration with all of the other personae of ourselves if we are going to save the planet for future humans to inhabit. So it's, it, it's a very important thing. And we're, and we're at a critical moment. Time is running out. How is this moment different from what was happening in the mid and late 60s? We were working up to it then, certainly. Um, I think the, the size, however, rather than merging, have become more fixed. And so it's more a battle between us and them than it should be. What we need is not to have an us and them, but just integration. What you do personally with your own personae has to be also what one does with the totality of our, of our society in our nations. I found that as a guru, so excise that. <laughs> so that's a tender spot for you, is to be mindful of not, not going the way of the guru. You know, yeah. like, just, I, I don't, I don't know, Carl, I think, I think a lot of times people need to be very careful about the projections that they end up taking on by others and that how projections can end up affecting our own, our consciousness. And I mean, so, our, our present Pope is a very intelligent man. And he said, who am I to judge? Yeah. And that's how I feel. Who am I to judge? Don't take my word for it. How do I know? I know I'm some dude. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm really thankful for you and your time today. And certainly all your work, again, Dr. Carl Ruck, the author of, you know, 378 books and six <laughs> new books coming in the next six months. <laughs> <laughs> Keep doing what you're doing, man. Thank you, John. Yeah, thank you. And I, I enjoyed that.